0: Well, like Don alluded to during the scripture reading this morning, though it may seem foreign and distant to us, Christianity is rooted in persecution. The entire foundation of the church was built on the blood of the martyrs. For the first 300 years of its existence, the church did not know peace or calm or tranquility or ease. There was always this fear that either persecution was taking place or that it would start back up at any moment. Over the church's early history, there were ten major persecutions of the church. The first was brought on by Emperor Nero in the 80s, 60s. I've already told you about Nero, though, and some of his persecutions, persecutions which were terrible. A second great persecution, though, came just 20 years after him, under the reign of Domitian. Christians were once again made the scapegoats of the empire, and they were blamed for anything bad that happened, from famines to disease to earthquakes it was during this time that Paul's disciple Timothy was martyred in Ephesus. The second great persecution ended in 1896, and Christians, they finally knew peace, but that peace lasted for just one year before the third great persecution ramped up. This third one, lasting from 1898 to 117 under Emperors Trajan and Adrian, saw some 10,000 plus Christians martyred. Just on and on it went. For, for 300 years, although there were some breathers, the Christian church was actively being persecuted and killed by the Roman Empire. It was especially bad in Rome itself. Seemingly, every bishop in Rome was, was martyred. Some lasted in their office for just four days. And just imagine the boldness it took to, to stand up and be the next leader of the Church of Rome. It was a death sentence, but the church still survived. I want to fast forward to the 10th and final great persecution under Emperor Diocletian from AD 80 284 to 305. This was the last major persecution of the Christians, but it also was the worst. Diocletian wanted to revive the pagan religion of Rome, which was fading at that time, and, but he didn't just want to persecute the Christians, he wanted to, he wanted to kill them. All of them. That this was a planned annihilation. That this was a Holocaust planned. <coughs> Together with the son Galerius, Diocletian put into motion this plan to wipe out the Christians on February 23rd, 303. This persecution started in Nicomedia, which was the capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire at the time. Officers made their way to the main Christian building. They ransacked it. They burnt all the books. And they finally tore the building down to the ground. An edict was issued such that all Christian churches were to be destroyed, all books were to be burned, and all Christians were to be arrested. And in Nicomedia, the first city that happened, every single Christian was imprisoned. Galerius then ordered the imperial palace to be set on fire, and he, he was taking a page from Nero's book because he blamed it on the Christians in order to rally the people against the Christians, and it worked. This started a 10-year persecution which saw thousands and thousands of believers killed. Anyone who just went by the name Christian was at risk. You were in peril if you clung to that name. And the worst lies and the most unreasonable stories were were just made up to oppose the Christians. And the torture they went through just really exhausts the imagination. One man named Sebastian, he was an officer... In the emperor's guard at Rome, and during the persecution, though, he refused to recant his faith and to worship idols. And so Diocletian ordered him to be shot through with arrows, which he was. They left him for dead. Christians came and found his body, but they found signs of life. So they took him back, they nursed him, he survived, and they nursed him back to health. But his newfound health would be short-lived. Sebastian went after he recovered. He found Diocletian, and he rebuked him for his treatment of Christians. Diocletian was surprised to see him alive, but nonetheless ordered him to be killed again, and this time he was. To prevent his body from being found by the Christians, it was thrown into the Roman sewers, but his body was found recovered and prepared, and he was buried in the catacombs under Rome to this day. Stories like this are just too many to tell, I want to give you just one more, though. And on June 22nd, 287, a man named Alban became the first British martyr. Alban was a pagan. He was converted by a minister named Amphibolus. Later, Amphibolus was being sought by authorities because of his faith. So Alban hid him in his home. They found out, and they came to his house searching him out. Alban, however, he claimed that he was Amphibolus, and so they took him. Later, though, that was figured out as well, and so Alban was ordered to be executed. But on the way to his execution, his executioner was converted to Christ through him and refused to go through with it, refused to execute him. In turn, the executioner asked if he would be allowed to die in place of Alban or alongside of Alban, and the two of them were beheaded together. And you, you just think of all the individual stories and the individual persecutions. And it's just overwhelming. This last great persecution intensified in the year AD 304, which was one year before the end of the reign of Diocletian. It's almost as if the pagans sensed the change was taking place, and so they wanted to hurry up and and persecute and afflict as many Christians as possible. Thankfully, not long after this, Constantine rose to power in Rome, and he officially ended the persecution against the Christians We'll save his story for another day. But this marked the end of some 300 years of intense suffering by the Christians. And when you hear about such suffering and persecution, it probably makes you ask, why? It kind of seems backwards. If Christians are really God's people, then why does God allow them to suffer so much? The the suffering still happens today. Persecution for the faith. Thousands of Christians still are killed today every year in India, China, the Middle East, used to be Russia. Why would God allow this? Why is there still suffering at all? How could a, a good God let this happen? These are common questions. Over the co- course of the past several months, though, we have seen these questions answered in the book of 1 Peter. And one of Peter's dominant themes is suffering. He lets us know why it happens. He, he lifts the curtain and he shows us God's behind the scenes as to why suffering exists. And now we're near the end of this letter. And we find, however, Peter really bring together this teaching on suffering in, in a very profound and helpful way. But take your Bibles right now and open them to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue along in, in this letter. 1 Peter chapter 4. There really are Three major thoughts running through 1 Peter. Number one is the reality of suffering. Number two is the need for following Christ's example. And number three is the future glory awaiting believers. And now we get to the end, and what we find from chapter 4, verse 12, through the end of the letter, Peter's taking these three thoughts, and he's going to weave them together into one, like three braids just coming together into one. And here's what he's going to say. We find that the normal Christian life involves suffering because one follows Christ's example. But in the end, glory awaits for all such believers. In short, the cross comes before the crown for all of us. And he's going to really wrap together his teaching on suffering and bring it to an end here as we finish 1 Peter. Some of you have been with us through much of 1 Peter, And you've you've learned this lesson. You get it. You see what God is doing through suffering. You you get his greater purposes behind suffering. And this enables you to do something as crazy as rejoicing in the midst of your suffering because you know what God is doing. And that's good. That's a sign of maturity. And if that's your response, then I praise God for that. I think our text today will be a solidifying reminder for you, really bringing that together and reinforcing that lesson. For others, you might still be wondering, you still have those questions, why? Why suffering? Why does God allow it for Christians? Well, listen to what Peter has to say this morning. It's so important that you get suffering right. That you think about it correctly And in God's inspired word coming through the Apostle Peter this morning. It's going to help you do that. Suffering has the ability to, to knock you down. For false believers, they can just kick them right out. And yet it's so important that you rightly react to it and know how to process it when it comes that you can endure. To start us off, let's read our passage for this morning. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, Peter writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, is keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, He's not to be ashamed, but he's to glorify God in this name. From our text, it's pretty simple. I just want you to learn how to handle suffering. A simple how to. How to handle suffering. And I'm going to give you two ways in particular. Two ways to handle suffering in particular. How do you handle it? Well, two ways. The first is this. I'll keep the how-to theme going. How to react with respect to suffering. How to react to it. It's from verses 12 through 14. How to react with respect to suffering. And in these verses, Peter's going to tell us both what not to do and what to do when it comes to our reaction to suffering. Start in verse 12. Look look how he just begins this, this section. And he is beginning a little new thought and section in the letter. He says, Beloved, that's a common term of endearment found in Scripture. When people go through suffering, they can start to doubt that that God loves them or that anyone loves them, but neither are true. And Peter, you see his pastoral heart coming out here, and he's reminding them, just, look, you're loved. You're loved by God, you're loved by me. Beloved, he writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Right away we see already how not to react with respect to suffering. This is what not to do. He says, do not be surprised. Don't, don't be troubled. Don't be confused or shocked by it. And when it comes to dealing with suffering, you need to maintain that the proper expectations is what he's going to get at. It's all about expectations. I remember that being told myself and Angel when we were going through premarital counseling as a young couple. And I tell young couples the same thing today. It's all about Expectations. Sometimes in marriage, you have a young couple with very unrealistic, you know, happily ever after, fairy tale expectations of what marriage is going to be like. And then when they start living together, reality falls short of their expectations, and then trouble ensues. And now, it's not like marriage isn't fantastic, but, but look, whenever two sinners live together that closely, you, you better expect some level of conflict, just by definition. If you do so, if you expect differences, you're going to be ready to tackle them, to resolve them, and then just get on with enjoying life. That's a good thing. For Christians, though, he's saying, look, suffering should be part of your expectations just as a Christian. It should be on the list to suffer. It should come as no surprise to you. Later in the verse, Peter says, it's not like some strange thing is happening to you. It's not like this is coming out of left field, like, whoa, you're suffering now. This is expected. This was such a needed exhortation for Peter's original audience. Remember, he's talking to mainly Gentile Christians, and this was foreign to them. They were not used to suffering for their religion. They were used to being in the majority. They were the ones who were making other people suffer for their religion. Now, the tables were turned. Yeah, sure, the, the Jewish Christians, they were used to it. They were used to persecution, but not these Gentile believers. This was new. This was unexpected. In fact, it seemed contrary to all these promises that came with the gospel. You know, now they were they were finally following the one true God and his true Son. Shouldn't life be all all peachy now? Shouldn't things be great? Why would they suffer if they're following the real God now? But Peter tells them, he tells us, Don't be surprised first. It's not out of the ordinary. It may make you ask why. Why is that? Why shouldn't you be surprised at suffering? The answer simply is this, because suffering comes with the territory for Christians. It just it comes with the territory. Christ told you to expect it. I remember one time as a kid, I went to this summer day camp, and every Wednesday was beach day. Every single Wednesday. It was good. Zuma Beach in Southern California is where we went. I remember, strangely, one time in the waves as a little kid, and I saw a little fish swim by in the surf, and for whatever reason, I remember my response, I was surprised, and almost shocked to see a fish swim right next to me in in the surf, but just think about that, I mean, granted, you you don't see fish all the time right in the surf, but look, what did I really expect, (laughs) fish live in the ocean. It comes with the territory. I had no reason to be so surprised to see a fish in the ocean. You see, likewise for Christians, suffering just it comes with the territory. It may not happen every day, but it's part of the package. It's part of what you signed up for. Did you not realize that you were buying into an offensive gospel and an offensive Savior? Listen to just what Christ himself taught. You don't have to turn just follow along. John 15:18 if the world hates you you know that it has hated me before it hated you John 15 verse 20 remember the word that I said to you a slave is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you John 16 verse 33 in the world you have tribulation but take courage I have overcome the world First John 3 verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Very similar verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Lastly, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Get this one. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Simple promise. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. If you, if you want to be a Christian... If you want to live for the Lord, you just have a promise. You will be persecuted. So what's Peter saying? How how should you react to suffering? First, he says, don't don't be surprised. It comes with the territory. It's part of following Christ. That still might beg a question, though. Again, why? I mean, God certainly has the power to to keep us from suffering, to, to stop it. So why has God made suffering a part of the Christian experience? Why does it come with the territory? It doesn't have to. So why is this still part of God's plan? Why, why does He allow it? Why does He even bring it into our lives? Well, that's answered in the next phrase in verse twelve. Look again at verse twelve. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you, which comes upon you for your testing. See, our trials, our tribulations, our fiery ordeals, they exist for our testing. Let me explain. First, notice how Peter describes our afflictions as a fiery ordeal. Now, in this phrase, people often think that Peter's referring to Nero's persecutions. As you know, Nero ordered Rome to be burned uh, because he wanted to expand his building projects. It got out of hand. The fire he started lasted nine days. It burnt down a huge portion of Rome, and he ended up blaming the Christians for it as his scapegoat. And that started the first great persecution. And during this time, Christians were put in shirts of stiff wax. They were tied to poles in Nero's garden, and they were set on fire to provide light for his parties. That sounds like a fiery ordeal, but that's not actually what Peter's talking about in this verse. Why is that? Well, Peter is writing this letter before that happened. He's writing 1 Peter before this great persecution began. Additionally, Peter's not writing to Christians in Rome where this happened. He's writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. That being the case, okay, well, what's he talking about? What's this fiery ordeal then? Well, Peter, he's starting to build this image, this word picture Which in reality, he already started back in chapter 1. If you were with us, you remember. Why don't you go ahead and turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 6. His theme of suffering began right from the start. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. By various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter one, six and seven, a very similar passage. What's the image? What's the image that Peter started in chapter one and he is now building on here in chapter four? It's a picture of a refiner's fire, a metallurgist who melts down metals in an intense furnace. Why would he do this? Is it to destroy the metal? No. It is to improve it, to refine it, to strengthen it, to purify it. Take gold, for example, which Peter brings up in chapter 1. Gold found naturally contains impurities. And just last year, a man dug up an 8.2 pound nugget of gold in his backyard, pretty much on accident. That's a lot. It sold for $460,000, but it wasn't even pure, of course. If it was pure gold, it would be way more. But gold contains impurities, and it comes in different purities represented by carats, 24 carats being the max. If you have 24 karat gold, it means there's zero impurities in it. It's nothing but gold right there. Then it goes down the scale. I think my wedding ring is 14 karat gold. They usually mix gold with copper or other metals because it, to make it stronger in jewelry. But 24 karat, 24 karat gold is the best. It's what you want, and it doesn't exist in nature. You have to refine it. You have to get the impurities out. Like I said, all metals contain impurities. To purify them and make them more valuable, you've got to remo- remove the impurities. But How do you do that? I mean, how do you remove Impurities from metal, from solid metal. You melt it down. You melt it down. And as you, can ta- as you can guess, that takes a huge amount of heat. The smelter will put the gold in the fiery furnace until it melts. At that point, the impurities, they rise to the top, and they can be skimmed off the top. And what's left over is more pure gold. It takes a lot of time, however, and a lot of heat to get that 24 karat pure gold. But that's a picture that Peter draws on, because this is what God is doing to us. He says, verse 12, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing." This word in chapter 4, verse 12, for fiery ordeal actually refers to the refiner's furnace. God is the smelter and he's putting us in the fire. Why? He's putting us through trials and tribulations. Why? Is it to destroy you or to harm you, to to burn you? No, it is to purify you, to strengthen you, to prove you. You have to remember what God values in his children, in Christians. He did not... Save you so that you could be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. He saved you so that you could be pure and like Christ. He wants your faith. He wants 24 karat faith, to be exact. That takes some work. That takes some refining. That, that takes some fire to get you there. And this is why God allows, even brings, suffering in our life to refine you that your faith may be purified, strengthened, and proved. It's not always pleasant. And the virus, or rather the furnace can be painful, but the result is invaluable, and God he doesn't do this out of wrath for his children. He does it out of love. So why do you suffer as a Christian? Why, why do you have fiery ordeals in your life? It's to test you, to purify you, to strengthen you, to prove you. Just briefly turn back to James chapter 1. You know the reference. It's just right before 1 Peter, so it's not far. James chapter 1. And just remember what James said, nearly the same thing. Just like 1 Peter, James likewise writes to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And look how he also begins his letter. James chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4, these familiar verses, he says, Consider it all joy, all of it, all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The same thing. And is that what you want? To be perfect and complete, spiritually speaking. For Christians, the answer is yes. That's God's purpose in our lives. We'd be made into the image of Christ. And if suffering can get us there, then far from being a bad thing, it can actually be viewed as a good thing. It's making us more like Christ. I have to tell you, that that's a mature teaching. To ever view suffering as good, But if you can get that teaching from Scripture, then you're well on your way. And if you can get that, that can actually lead you to the right response. We've talked about here in 1 Peter how to respond. He says, first, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Don't be taken aback. What's the right response then, if that's the wrong response? Once you understand the purpose, you get it. It is to rejoice. The right response is to even rejoice. 1 Peter 4, turn back there, look at verse 13. It says, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you which come upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but, verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with Exaltation. Just like James said, Peter says, rejoice. When suffering comes, just count it all joy. That's so antithetical. It's so paradoxical to the world. To the world, it's contradictory. They cannot rejoice in their sufferings. To them, their their suffering is just empty. There's nothing there. How can you, however, rejoice in your suffering? It's because of what it produces. The suffering itself is not good. There's nothing righteous in the suffering event itself. It's rather what it brings about. And we rejoice in the invaluable results of the suffering. Like we said, in suffering we are purified, we are strengthened, and we are proven. Now, would you rejoice if you lost a lot of weight? For most of you, yeah, I think we all would. Why? Because you just improved yourself. Would you rejoice if you just aced a big exam? Well, of course. Why? Because you just proved yourself. Likewise, suffering both improves you and proves you, and therefore you would, why wouldn't you, rejoice? Of course, suffering is more painful than, than a hard workout at the gym or, or a study cram session, but, but that means the rejoicing is greater as well. Specifically, Peter says that to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. We're going to see later, not all suffering is created equal. When you suffer for doing what is wrong, there's really nothing in it for you. But when you suffer for doing what is right, which is what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ, he says you can rejoice, like an escalator. The higher up you go in sharing Christ's suffering, the more and more you can rejoice This all leads to a greater rejoicing. He says this ultimate joy, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. He just pictures this ultimate, supreme joy, which comes when Christ returns. As you know, when Jesus came to earth, he veiled his glory during the incarnation. That glory was resumed when he ascended. But he has not yet revealed that glory on earth for everyone to see. And that will happen when he returns And when he does return, some people will be rejoicing and others won't. And can you guess who's who? You see, only those who have passed through the fire, who have endured, who have been proven will be rejoicing on that day. And that's why this is a supreme rejoicing. Verse 14, it says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. At the time Peter was writing, Christians at at this point were mostly suffering verbal attacks for their faith. Later it would become, like I talked about, the physical martyrs and and persecutions. But much like today, Christians were suffering slander, ridicule, defamation. For what? Just one thing. Naming the name. That's why they were suffering. They were naming the name of Christ. In one sense, that's reassuring. It's not like the world actually hates you. I mean, they hate Christ and what he stands for. If you just abandon Christ, they'll love you. You'll you'll be on their side. Of course, that's not an option for us. And this is why this persecution is to be expected. Yet, if this happens or when this happens, when you are reviled from the name of Christ, when you suffer... Persecution simply for being a Christian, it says you're blessed. You have this special blessing upon you. God's spirit rests on you, blessing you, showing you favor, and producing refreshment and strength. I picture Stephen, the first martyr in the church, as he was literally being stoned to death just for naming the name, just for standing up and representing the name of Christ. The Spirit of God rested on him, and he had what? This perfect peace and strength and joy. And far from thinking he was cursed, he understood he was blessed, and he rejoiced as he was being killed for Christ. Just like Jesus taught Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. He says, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Christians often wonder if they're saved, if they're truly saved. Are they the seed on the good soil, or are they the seed on the bad soil? How can they ever know? They they doubt. It's not like they're doubting God, per se. They're doubting themselves. Am I really in? Am I God's child? Am I true? Am I genuine, or am I phony? What's the deal? They they struggle with doubt. This is one, one of the blessings that suffering brings. Assurance. You see, when you go through the fire and you endure for the right reasons, for the gospel, for Christ, and you endure, you come out on the other side proven. You see, unbelievers and false believers, they don't endure. Just like straw doesn't survive the fire, neither do they. They fall away. Even if they claim Christ, the second real persecution comes that they abandon ship. They're out of there. But not so for you. If you're truly his, you stay, you remain, you endure, and you're proven. And when you endure, like I said, that should reassure you. It should comfort you. I know for many of you, that's what you want. You just want to know that you're true, that you're real, that you're genuine in your faith. And just knowing that produces for the true believer a true joy. That joy brings hope, and that hope leads to that ultimate rejoicing when Christ returns. It all comes from suffering. Listen to this, Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says, We exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about Hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He understands the chain. Suffering brings endurance, brings perseverance and proven character. And hope and that leads us to that ultimate joy when Christ returns, because that's what we long for, and we get that vindication. So how should you react with with respect to suffering, was our first question. When you rightly really understand God's purpose behind it, you're not going to be surprised. You're not going to be shocked. You understand it comes with the territory. Instead, you get it, and you can even rejoice in it. And that's how. That's how you should react to suffering. Accept it, embrace it, endure, and then rejoice. I have a second how-to now. I mentioned two ways to handle suffering. First, how to react Secondly, now how to act with respect to suffering. Just simply how to act now with respect to suffering, from verses 15 and 16. So far, Peter has taken this topic of suffering and he, he spun it. The suffering itself is not good, but for Christians, suffering can be viewed as good because of what it brings, what it produces. Like we said earlier, the world, they can never rejoice in their sufferings, truly. For them, it's empty. It produces nothing valuable. For us, suffering gives us greater strength, purity, and Christ-likeness. Indeed, it even confirms us as God's true children. But not all suffering is created equal. Not all suffering has such positive effects. If you suffer for Christ, you are blessed, but... You can suffer for other things and you wouldn't be so blessed. So, when it comes to suffering, you not only need to react rightly, but you also need to act rightly. And look at verse 15. He continues on, he says, Make sure, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So here, we'll start with the negative again. How to act? Well, negatively, how not to act. He says, do not commit evil. But then your suffering is of no benefit. If you kill, you steal, you commit a crime, you get thrown in jail, yeah, you're suffering.
1: But you deserve it.
0: I mean, you just brought that upon yourself. There's no blessedness in that. From murdering to stealing to just plain acts of evil, you reap what you sow. And any suffering you incur for these comes with no blessing from God. I think that's pretty obvious. He mentions a fourth term, however, in verse 15. He says suffering as a troublesome meddler. This phrase is not really referring to sin per se. It's talking about one who gets involved in the business of others. This is the person who meddles in the affairs of others as they should not be it in the public square, at the workplace, or wherever. And the point he's making is, look, when you suffer for these other things, something other than Christ, something other than the gospel, because you, you stuck your nose where it didn't belong, just because you're a Christian doesn't make it Christian suffering. It doesn't come with God's blessedness unless it's for the name. Angel and I saw this TV show once called Whale Wars. And it's kind of funny. It's about a bunch of activists and they've got a small fleet of boats, and they travel to the South Pacific to try and stop the Japanese whalers from killing the whales. And they're pretty radical. They take these like rope contraptions, and they deploy them in front of the whaling vessels to try and to, uh, jam the rudders. They throw these heavy-duty industrial stink bombs on the decks of the vessels to just make life miserable, and it spoils the whale meat. They've gone so far as to boarding one of the ships peacefully, but still, that's a pretty big deal. Now, say you're a Christian, and for whatever reason, you just love the whales. And you hate seeing them killed. So you decide to join up with this group of activists to save the whales. In your passion for this cause, you board a Japanese ship. You get arrested, you get beaten, you get thrown in jail. Which actually happened to two guys in the show, by the way, they did that. So now you're suffering though you're a Christian, however, that, that's not righteous suffering. This is not suffering for the gospel. You've been a troublesome meddler. You know, Be as passionate as you want about the whales or whatever you want, but do not overstep your bounds. Rather, like 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands. Any suffering or persecution you endure you should really bring on yourself for the gospel, for Christ. Otherwise, he says, lead a quiet life. And needless to say, I think we learn this is how not to act when it comes to suffering. Do not sin, do not commit evil, do not cause trouble, or else your suffering will come without God's favor, and there's really no benefit in that for you or blessedness. Instead, verse 16, he says, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. But just to glorify God in this name. Here's how you really should act when it comes to suffering: act as a Christian. Just be a Christian and everything that means. Live for the Lord as Christ called you. Pick up your cross daily and follow Him. And if that's you, if you suffer for this, He says, "Do not be ashamed, because this is how Jesus suffered too." In this verse, we see the word Christian. Actually, that word only happens or occurs three times in the Bible Christian. Today, that's the number one title for a follower of Jesus, Christian, right? But back in the early church, it wasn't. They didn't use the term Christian at first. Originally, they were called the brethren or, or those of the way or saints. Christian was not their first preferred title. In fact, it started as a derogatory term against them used by their enemies. The Romans used the term Christian to differentiate this new group of Jesus followers from all the other religious groups so that they could focus their persecution on them. Christian became the title against them that if you, if you clung to that title, a Christ follower, then you were marked out for persecution. The name Christian at first was associated with suffering and persecution. That's what Peter's bringing out. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he says, Today, that's different. Today, we, we throw this word around very casually. A Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian, of course. Everyone's a Christian now. And what's the statistic recently? Like 80% of Americans identify with the title Christian. It's just nonsense. It's become so watered down. It's so shallow that now people look for other terms, but it doesn't work like evangelical. They all get watered down. But I can tell you this. You know, it's possible to reclaim the purity of the title Christian. You can do that. It's not hard. If you want to do that, just start persecuting everyone who goes by the name. You can just start arresting them, seizing their property, beating them, throwing them in jail. And then see who sticks around. See who still goes by the name Christian. And you can bet it will be a lot fewer people. Would it be you, though? Would you stick around if that started happening again, that the Roman persecution ramped back up? Would you stick around? Would you cling to the name still of Christian? And if your mind right now, you're answering yes, then Peter says, don't be ashamed of that. When you're insulted, reviled, or persecuted for the faith, it can start to make you feel ashamed for holding such beliefs, like something's wrong with you. Like What's wrong with me? Why is everyone against me here? There's that temptation in there to think that way. Now I know Christians who, they believe the gospel and the Lord, they believe what the Bible says, but it's almost like they're ashamed of it, or what the Bible says, like creationism, that they're ashamed of what the Bible says. You know, they get picked on so much, they just don't want to talk about it anymore, and I get that in a sense, but he says, don't be ashamed. When you suffer for Christ, that's no cause for shame. Sin is a cause for shame. Standing up and suffering for him is a cause for honor and glory. Do not be ashamed in Christ. Do not be ashamed in the gospel. Like Paul said, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Or buddy, consider this. I want you to turn with me. This is important. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just look at this verse. It's so right on par with what Peter saying. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 7. It's so parallel here, and in, in, uh, it's a beneficial text. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 7. Consider what I say. Uh, oh, I'm in chapter 2. Okay, chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. You're not supposed to be weak under the Lord. Rather, verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for what? For the gospel according to the power of God. When God saved you and gave you the, the spirit and his power, it's not to be weak for his name. It's to be strong for his name and to be able to suffer for his name without being ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Verse 9, we're speaking about God, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, with which, uh, which he granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Now, verse 12. Get verse 12. Bring this all together. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Paul, why aren't you ashamed? You've got a lot of persecution going on. He says, For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, namely his soul, his salvation. If Christ were a phony, yeah, I'd be ashamed of suffering for him, but I know whom I've believed as well. I know the name and who he is and what he has done. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And he's worth even suffering for. Do not be timid in Christ, do not be weak, do not be ashamed, rather, be bold and powerful. Be loving, be willing also to suffer. First Peter four sixteen. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So do you name the name? Do you really believe in Jesus? Is he truly your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Him for your salvation? And are you just sold out and following Him? You, You follow him. He's your master. If so, then take pride in the name of Christ and the title of Christian and glorify God in that name. Of course, the world's going to hate you for this. They hated Jesus. They will hate you. Of course, they're going to think you're a fool. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You're going to suffer shame for his name, but that doesn't mean you are to be ashamed Like the apostles, after being beaten by the Jews, Acts 5.41, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You see, the world hurled shame upon them and beating and mistreatment. They suffered shame, but they weren't ashamed. You see the difference? They rejoiced in the name. The same should be true for us as well. It is glory and honor and blessing to to suffer for the name. All of you surely know suffering will come your way in life. Not a surprise. We may no longer live under the Roman Empire. We may no longer <laughs> live under that threat of martyrdom. We may no longer live under constant fear of beating and imprisonment. But don't be mistaken, the world still hates the name. The world still hates it. Therefore, persecution is inevitable. In one form or another. So, like we said, be ready. Be ready to handle it when it comes. This is why Peter is writing and wrapping things up. He says, know first how to react to suffering. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't let it stumble you or take you back. But rightly understanding God's purpose behind it, you can react rightly. You can even rejoice. You can even thank God for it and count it all joy. Because you know God is hes purifying you, he's strengthening you, he's refining you. He's not going to forsake you. In fact, he's going to prove you. You're going to come out on the other side proven and full of joy. Also, he says, know how to act when suffering. Avoid sin, avoid evil, avoid, avoid bringing suffering on yourself. Instead, simply live for Christ. Just live as a Christian. If that causes you to suffer, so be it. And don't be ashamed. May we all just glorify God when he counts us all worthy to suffer for his name's sake, either today, tomorrow, or the days to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this world is fallen and in rebellion against you. The entire world system led by Satan hates you. Now they hate the Savior. They hate the name. And they hate those who follow him. And that would be us, Lord. We... We know persecution is to be expected. You have promises. Such comes with the territory. Many of us have already experienced it in our lives in one form or another. I pray we would heed this counsel and not suffer wrongly, not bring this upon ourselves for doing what is evil. Keep us in your will. Keep us following Christ passionately that we would only go by his name. And if that brings us suffering, simply following him, then the Lord so be it. And may none of us here be ashamed. Give, give us all a boldness in Christ. Suffering is difficult. Going through the fire is not pleasant. It's a challenge. And we are weak, Lord. We pray for your grace, your spirit of, of grace to rest upon us. And we know it will. So we thank you for that. Keep us in your will. Keep us walking along your path. Help us to endure when suffering comes. And we glorify you. We glorify you now and we rejoice in you now because of all that we have in you and in Christ. And Lord, indeed, we long for the day when Christ's glory is revealed because we know we're going to be the ones shouting for joy on that day, not crying in despair on that day. And Keep us in your will. In your name we pray. Amen.